record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hi, I'm Trisha Yearwood, and you're tuned to Furniture Today's On the Record podcast with Bill McLaughlin. Before we turn to Bill and his guests, I just want to give a shout out to the entire Furniture Today team and remind you that when there's something exciting to announce, you'll read about it first in Furniture Today. And now, here's Bill McLaughlin and On the Record. Welcome to On the Record. I'm Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. My guest this week is Joe Scaretta, co-CEO and founder of C.S. Hudson. Um, Joe, for people who don't know who C.S. Hudson is, what C.S. Hudson does, um, in a few minutes they absolutely will. But just just kind of give them you know, the, the 10 second overview, 20 second overview of what it is that you do. No, I appreciate it. Well, one, Bill, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, a little bit of background on C.S. Hudson. We are a national facilities management organization uh, who specializes in facilities management. So small retail trade projects and services for national retail tenants, uh, banks, restaurants, commercial landlords, and property owners uh, through general trade work, carpentry, electrical, plumbing, handyman, painting, wall coverings, and finishes, flooring. And then we support the capital projects side of our business uh, in supporting retailers and, again, same thing, commercial landlords, uh, property owners through our capital renovations division. So we'll do capital projects flooring and paint initiatives, any type of refreshes uh, for an organization, rebranding, especially rebranding has become very big and uh, heating up over the last you know several years. Uh, we specialize in pop-ups and graphic installations as well, uh, both areas that have continued to flourish uh, as we've gone into COVID-19 well, that, and now start to exit hopefully soon. Yeah, that's, that's actually the part that I thought was most relevant right now to talk to you about is that you're helping companies deal with the adjustments that they need to make to their facilities based on um, dealing with the pandemic. I mean, you actually have added a tab to your website specifically about COVID. You've got a checklist. Um, tell me a little bit about how you did that and wh- you know how quickly you, you started to ha- recognize the need for adaptation. You know, I think we, we tried to, as a business, pivot very quickly um, in really looking at seeing what we could leverage our existing infrastructure for uh, to support what retailers and clients would need to support either their downtime and staying closed for a period of you know, two, three, four, five months in some cases, and then what they would need when they reopened. And what is it, what is retail going to look like uh, post-reopening? And so what we did was we sat together as an organization and as a team. You know, Our background in retail spans well over 15 years. Uh, my background started on the operations side. And we started looking at each facet of a retail store to, to find consideration around what scopes and trades and, and what retailers would need. And we, in essence, built a tool a toolbox uh, with a number of different solutions where a retailer can come in. Because what we, what we heard a lot early on was, and we've grown our businesses this way over the years, was through client pain points. And we really try to focus on listening to what the client needs and really trying to anticipate where the marketplace is going. And we heard a number of you know, clients looking for sneeze guard support uh, installing sneeze guards at your POS stations or you know near your fitting rooms, and then the question came up from a client: Well, where can we buy them? If you can install them, can you supply them? And so, really aligning ourselves as we have over the years with strategic partners, where we could offer that turnkey solution, uh, because understanding retail would always come back, 
it just may come back slightly different. No different than, you know, the comparison may be a little awkward, but when experiential started to become big for retail, retail was changing and shifting. And retailers that moved with the time and supported experiential continued to grow and thrive. Retailers that weren't willing to change did not continue to thrive and found themselves, in most cases, moving out of retail. Uh, no different than where we are now. The retailers that are focusing on, you know, ease of shopping, you know, really limiting where in the past we wanted that that touch to the customer, constantly touching them, taking them through the story and the journey of the store. Now it's how can I get them in and out quickly and have as little interaction with them as possible so they feel comfortable and confident and get them in and out, right? And get the same level of production from our staff. Keep our staff safe. We looked at that. Obviously, it's very important in order to keep the stores open or the critical uh, essential businesses open. We have to keep the staff safe. And then really focusing on you know, what does that experiential aspect look like? And really what's interesting is where the cleanliness, where cleaning used to be in a place where, you know, you didn't want to see it. It was done after hours in a store environment. Or it was in some cases, some retailers looked at it as more of an after the fact. Well, hey, I'll have my store staff throw away the waste, uh, you know, waste paper basket, um, low waste, uh, you know, generating store. Now it's, they want you to see the cleanings taking place very uh, consistent and, and just constantly so a consumer feels safe, right? Consumers are going to shop if it's easy. They're going to shop if it's clean and safe. And that's really taking precedent more than price or availability or specialty products. It's clean and safe and easy. And that's why they're shopping. And so we try to build our offering around anything from, like I said, sneeze guards, sanitation stations, um, you know, for the re- reopening and the and the uh, work taking place, specialty signage, you know, all the social distancing signage to really make sure that package was available to a consumer looking to reopen. What does it look like? What signage does it include? I, I have to say Kroger's did an incredible job creating this. Uh, they, they really elevated themselves as a market leader from a grocery standpoint in putting out what their standards were because a lot of, a lot of companies early on didn't have a standard. So I think Kroger's did a great job uh, in sharing that. You know, and then looking at the reformatting, you know, is there a lot of buy online, pick up in store, and now is that curbside? And how is what's the logistics, and how is that going to take place? The reformatting piece was really important, and the sanitation stations all around cleanliness and ease of shop. While these locations were closed, we also supported, as I touched on earlier, we created, you know, we've done store closures for a number of years uh, for national telecom companies for large restaurant chains and for large uh, organizations that had a multi-store, multi-site footprint looking to reduce, these closures were different. These closures were more temporary in nature. Uh, some maybe go permanent. But it's how do we close the stores, not debrand them? And what's the program to make sure those stores, their infrastructure is safe? The product and the materials are safe. How are we going to make sure that there's no maintenance issues that because we're, nobody's in the store to monitor them and they're not warm shells anymore, they're cold, how do we make sure that there's nothing going on in there? So developing dark store maintenance programs are really important. Um, we unfortunately went through a period of time with riots and looking at you know what's going on in the climate in, in the U.S. today and really looking at, you know again, these are trade services we had before, but we tried to lump them within this program, board-ups, blast replacements, vandalism. It's just something that's constantly happening and being able to offer that client peace of mind, saying, hey, we've already built this book of services that 
some of them they're existing and some of them we've leveraged the existing services and maybe added a little bit more to them, it gives the, the customer a sense of comfort. They can go to one place and have peace of mind. And so they could afford that same opportunity to their consumer. Mm-hmm. So walk me through the process. If I'm a, a retailer, I'm opening my store, obviously I you know, want to add sanitation stations, the signage. What does that process look like? What does the investment look like? And how does that progress as my store stays open? Well, I think, I think one, the most important part is, you know, you, you have to develop what your reopening plan is. I think you, you have to look at a number of areas. You know, your in-store and out-of-store experience, what does that look like? You have to look at leveraging technology, your social distancing signage. But you also have to make sure, what are your high-touch areas? You know, what assets do you have in the field right now? And how could you protect and empower those assets in the field to make sure you, you support your client, your consumer? Your store footprint and layout, again, it all ties into what your business model is going to look like. What we always say is you have to build a team of experts, both internally and externally. And, you know, finding not only the, the experts within your corporate headquarters, but the experts from the field the people that are living and working in these stores day in and day out. Uh, because building a process and building this, call a steering committee, call it a reopen team, building those processes are going to have to come with great feedback from both parts of the group. And then leveraging your outside external resources, maybe a uh, retail consultant that's now developing what your, what your uh, you know, scope of work or what's your process for returns. You know, having someone with that retail background and then getting the multiple departments working together, that's where you're going to be able to develop what your plan is. And then when you develop that plan, we, we created you know, a sample checklist that we thought was helpful for a, a number of uh, retailers. Uh, but developing what your checklist is, because that's the only way looking at that process day in and day out, making sure that you're committing to and delivering on each one of those items, nothing's forgotten. Um, but I also think soliciting feedback from your consumers and your store staff and our employees are important. And realizing that that process will always change. So you touched on specialty signage for wayfinding and social distancing. You know, we aren't going to be in this place forever. I think we we all know that. I think we all at least hope that right now. And I think the wayfinding signage and social distancing signage will continuously change. So soliciting feedback from your consumers and soliciting feedback from your store operations personnel and looking at what works because we've seen, you know, sticking with things that don't work it's going to affect your bottom line. It will always affect it. Uh, and it will affect your consumer base. And constantly evaluating, changing where your buy online pickup and store uh, location is. Coming up with a way to keep curbside going. How do you increase and streamline your curbside to go? And honestly, that's all done through, you know, process improvement and also through your signage. You know, social distancing, reminding consumers, go up one aisle one way and down the other. Uh, you know, some retailers, I think, I think it's also something that's important is I think some retailers, you know, if it's a smaller mom and pop shop, maybe they, they can use painter's tape on the floor with arrows and maybe that works. I think when you go into a larger organization, seeing the level of branding and professionalism and the way they've laid out their space and how every thought uh, was meticulously done and, and installation is really important because, one, I think it's going to help keep them more streamlined, but, two, it's going to give the consumer more comfort when shopping, and it's about comfort right now. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that because I've you know, done some, some reading, and you've obviously had a chance to see um, how consumers are interacting with the store environment differently 
where and how they're shopping. I understand that there's starting to be a little bit of a, a regionalization, right? People are a little more focused on shopping local. Um, what are you seeing in terms of consumer behaviors and how this is, um, how the pandemic is affecting the way they interact with a store? You know, I had asked a question similar to that not too long ago, and I think you're seeing, I think you're seeing the results of the retailers, both local and national, that are successful. And I hate to say it's bottom line driven, but you know, one of the questions that came up was, how will a retailer know if what they're doing is successful? I think the easiest way to see that, right, is consumer flow, consumer traffic, and bottom line costs, right? Um, but there has been a significant movement for um, different regions to shop locally, to try to support small business, recognizing that small business needs that additional infusion of, of capital to stay open and to try to rebuild, or maybe a larger retailer uh, maybe has a little bit more of a surplus or an opportunity for a balance sheet to leverage, where a smaller business that's been in a town for 20 years may not have that. And But I do see, I see a lot of, what's interesting, I've also noticed, I've seen national uh, brands start to leverage local local influence in their markets. So we've seen, and I can't speak to it specifically, but we've seen some national retail chains leverage that type of local environment feel in their stores including the product mix, which I thought was interesting. We haven't seen a movement like that in a very long time. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that uh, that West Elm has done very effectively. And I, I'm not suggesting that that's who you're referring to, but um, in the in the home furnishings area, they have done a, a very effective job of merchandising local in their respective markets. Um, I want to step back from a sec and, and not just talk about COVID. I want to talk about um, experiential retail and some of the things that you've done in that area, because whether or not you're dealing with the pandemic and when, as we hope it all is, comes to an end, for stores to remain viable, experience is critical. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you've done to help people um, in the experiential space. No, absolutely. Well, I think experiential has a a number of meanings to us and the work we've provided. I think, number one, most importantly, I think experiential is going to change significantly now due to COVID. I think it was always about touching uh, touching the consumer. I think immersing them in the brand. I don't think that will change. Uh, but I think we will continue to see a movement on the experiential side into more digital. Uh, and we were seeing that already, right, pre-COVID. But now it's kind of been thrust forward where it's become even more important than it was before. It might have been on the list, but now it's moved up the list. So we've done anything from digital, uh, digital stanchion installations. We've done a number of graphic installations, one-time museum-type exhibit installations. So it could have been a traveling uh, exhibit that we've installed and then taken down. We've done experiential activations for, uh, for instance, for Pride Week, where we did, it was a mixture of digital uh, along with uh, some documentary and some media uh, down in New York City, which was really interesting and very impactful. Um, So I... We've, we've touched on a number of pop-up locations, so we've done it both for retail direct or for socially charged causes. And what's interesting is I think where landlords have become more comfortable with pop-ups over the years, I think large in part due to maybe the companies and the scope of work or the scope of the pop-up changing dramatically from what it was once a temporary store, now it's truly a pop-up. It's immersive. And I think they're seeing a number of brands uh, try to tell their brand story through pop-ups. And I don't think that will change, but I think a lot more landlords now, even more than before, 
are going to have to be comfortable if they weren't. And again, most of them were by now because the amount of dark space that we're going to have over the next, I mean, we've seen reports up to 25,000 source closing. And I think that we're going to see a number of pop-ups and traveling interactive uh, museums and exhibits. Uh, that's going to be the future. I've even, I even saw something the other day, which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, the drive up uh, experience, right? How do you create this drive through experience that allows you to have that same interact, interaction with a brand without touching and feeling and immersing yourself in it? How do you immerse them in that brand? So I think your digital piece is going to be very important. I think your props and your scenic is going to be very important. Uh, all things that are doable, just been a slight shift maybe from where we were, you know, called six months ago, 10 months ago. Can you share with me, what was the drive-up experience? What was it that they were, um, was it a store? Was it some kind of a display? What was the experience? It was a number of brands that they were looking to uh, showcase the brands and showcase the experience within the brands. Um, and really what it, what it was, was you would drive up and you would literally be able to take you through that drive-through experience. So each one had, there was Instagramable moments, there was different uh, areas to post. Again, no different than that exhibit, but drive-through. So you don't have to worry about interacting with other um, other consumers as you're going through the event. So almost think about, um, have you ever been there? I know that you're an East Coaster. Uh, Hershey Park has, during the, during the holidays, they have their drive-through light show. Yep. Very similar alignment to the drive-through light show, only different brands had their experiences within this area. So it becomes a, a drivable park almost uh, of different Instagramable type moments, which was interesting comparative to what, you know, companies like, uh, you know, Cheat Day Land were doing within a physical retail space. Now you're seeing some of those immersive brand experiences out into uh, these other drivable experiences. So that could be another wave of opportunity for a lot of retailers and brands. Well, that was something, wasn't it? This is Trisha again for Klausner Home Furnishings. From my very first collection, I knew I'd come to the right place, that Klausner understood what I wanted to do with my furniture, how I wanted to share my recipe for comfortable living with the world. Now, let's get back to Bill McLaughlin and see what he and his guests have to share with us. How are companies adapting? Because it's, it's interesting, let me back up here. One of the things that I, we hear over and over again is the trends that were taking place before the pandemic have been accelerated by the pandemic. And so when I look at, for example, pop-ups, that was something whose, whose time has been coming for a while. Companies have been using them much more effectively. What do you see happening in terms of how companies are adapting and will continue to adapt to pop-up as they go forward? And, and if you have any examples that you think might be relevant to furniture stores in particular and how they might be able to apply it, um, our audience would, I'm sure, eat that up. No, oh, absolutely. I, I think I think full line brands as they look to reduce their store footprint also know that pop ups are a means of distribution and and really you know brand growth right looking for brand lift in different markets uh, same reason why brands are using them today I think would be applicable to the furniture market you know you look at different markets where there's opportunity uh, for growth within your brand or you want to see a brand lift uh, being able to set up a small shop uh, could be that that marketplace experience where you're giving a select group of, uh, you know, select population access to a, a smaller product line, a, sh a short run, something that creates excitement. It's temporary. Um, at the same token, we've seen even landlords, some of them start to facilitate 
uh, and offer really big incentive dollars to bring retailers there. Where in the past, retailers were, you were looked at by the landlord to say, hey, I don't want a pop-up experience. I, I don't, you get, I don't, I don't want a short-term deal. I want long-term. Now, if the pendulum swung, not only are they offering incentives or they're offering you the opportunity to, to have a space for, at no cost or paying you to be there to drive this marketplace experience. And we're, we're definitely seeing that shift. And I could see a number of furniture retailers where we've, we've all been in a place where we've been displaced from the work environment, all working remote for, you know, for those of us that can have, have been working remote for months now. We've seen the furniture market start to boom with creation of a lot of work at home spaces. We've seen a lot of, uh, specific upgrades to various homes, right? That we're seeing all these different trends. You look at a Wayfair is starting to, you know, really drive some significant revenues. But you look at some of the other online retailers and, and even uh, brick-and-mortar retailers that are selling furniture and different materials uh, for the home, seeing a huge uptrend. And I don't see that changing. I see it maybe leveling off a little bit, but I see it still being a huge driver because people are spending more time at home versus in the retail environment, right, or back in the office environment. So I think leveraging a pop-up, again, for me, it wouldn't change. It would be to get select product lines out there, look for brand lift in various markets, drive the experience and the brand, being immersed in the brand, but leveraging it more through technology, less through physical touch, uh, telling about the brand story and allowing you to really be immersed in that brand um, as opposed to, you know, it's tough because in the furniture industry, everything is about trying the furniture, looking at the different pieces. And I think here, you want to still maintain that, but you have to maintain a level of, has to be sanitized, has to be clean, and it has to be an environment where everybody feels safe shopping. And I think furniture, I think furniture, it's going to be a little bit tougher, and they're going to have to invest significantly on uh, the cleanliness of their locations. But I think leveraging the pop-up model would be extremely influential in some of their growth in the various markets. I think people want to get out right now, and they're going to continue as these markets open. People will continue to go out. Landlords are going to be burdened with excess dark space. And going in and putting up a pop-up space, whether it be something simple for five or ten thousand dollars for some finishes, or something more elaborate you know, in the fifteen, twenty, thirty, eighty thousand dollars range, whatever it may be, I think furniture is a tremendous opportunity to do, to do so. And I think, if anything, it's forcing us. That you touched on uh, earlier. There's there's a lot of trends that were happening early on before COVID, mm-hmm. and this just fed them up. One would be more digital and social, which we we saw happening. You know, this buy online, pick up in store. No one else buy online, pick up at curbside. That's another way to streamline it. Everybody was forced to do something better and really cater to the consumer, where I think some companies got a little bit lax in that area uh, and no different than any of the different retail industries. But it's it's driven everybody to get a little bit more streamlined and think about the customer a little bit of a different way. I'd like to talk about companies as employers. Um Obviously, when everybody kind of everything shut down and everybody went home, um, you know, work at home was very important. And I think we'll continue to see that. But as com- as people or companies start to bring their employees back to work and have to create an environment, what are you seeing in that space? What are some of the, the best practices that you see companies doing um, to make sure that they're ensuring their employees safety in the workplace? I think the most important part, it's almost similar to, to the retail environment, but, you know, constantly making sure your team and your employees feel safe, right? No, 
one wants to work in an environment, especially after going through the last four months, where they're worried about all this uncertainty of where where the industry or where life is going. I think they want to come to a place where it's safe. I think a little bit of normalcy has helped. Um, but constantly asking for feedback. I think going through the CDC guidelines, you know, we similar to what we did here, right? We went through the CDC guidelines. We had to go through the New York State guidelines. We built a plan. We had to submit that plan to the state. I know each state's probably a little bit different. Um, we had to get approval on, on our plans. We also had to put in uh, checkpoints at our entrances when you enter our, our location where um, temperatures are taken. You're also required to fill out a checklist of interaction to make sure that you, one, have maintained yourself in a safe distance away from anybody that's potentially affected, but also then focusing on um, what your current condition is before even coming to work and then being able to document it and then really come in. We've had sanitation stations throughout the location. We've had to add social distancing signage internally. We've added reminders throughout our, our location around um, specifically what are the do's and don'ts within this new current environment. Uh, we've had to even maintain excess masks on site in the event someone forgets their mask at home. So I think letting the employees and the team know that you've thought about every aspect of their return has helps them to feel more comfortable. And I think that along the lines of and also uh, encompassing their ability to get back out and feel some level of sense of normalcy back in the office environment, I think has helped out significantly. And Although it's stressful as you start to as things start to reopen, right? It's stressful because you got to figure out how much time it takes to get to work, even in the morning, right? Where someone was working from home, I had this conversation with somebody earlier. They were they they said it used to take me ten minutes to literally I got out of bed, brushed my teeth, you know, had a cup of coffee, and jump online. Well, now it's a thirty minute commute to the office. I have to jump in the shower. It's 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 an extra hour out of your day each way, no matter how you look at it. Getting people used to that finding daycare, finding childcare, and then getting back into the office environment. It's a lot, it's a lot of change. And I would tell you, I would argue that working remote, we all said, I don't understand how we're going to do that. You know, some of us work remote uh, less frequent, frequently than others. Some industries can't work remote. And I think a lot of us felt lucky and uh, to have an opportunity to work remote. And I think a lot of us felt comfort, but also were a little frustrated because it's like, how do we work remote? And then four months later, you're comfortable working remote. And I was like, well, how do we go back to the office environment? And I think meeting that again, yeah, I'm, you're like, we both had the, yeah, ex- exactly. Same, same thing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The call that we had with the team, you know, everybody was so excited to come back. But the call we had with the team, there was almost that look of, yeah, we're excited, but how are we going to do this? Like, what, how is it going to work? And I think we really spent a lot of time taking them through the process. And knowing we were lucky in our space, we didn't have to restack or relay out the office tremendously. I could tell you we're working with, you know, one of the architects and, and a number of different retailers that are looking to, maybe not even retailers, commercial um, properties that are looking to relay out their location for the same reason. You know, they had, we, we just went through this huge boom in open air working environments. And now we're co-working and shared desk and hot desk space. That's, that's, to me, that's completely out the window right now, right? Now it's, how do we space everybody six foot apart? Do we add acrylic sneeze guards in certain areas? And that's what, that's what our clients are looking for uh, because they have to maintain a safe environment, 
Um, but it's a it's a huge 180 from the direction of all these open environments where there's ping pong tables included. To now it's you can't even share the same pen when you sign in. It has to be sanitized every night. You need your temperature taken. So the days of playing ping pong, uh, you know, as a way to get together and get to know other departments, that's all changed for now. I, I think at some point we'll get back there, uh, but it's definitely a, a change for right now. The other thing I was sharing too was. I'm hopeful that some of the things we've learned and some of the things we've picked up and acquired through COVID, we will keep. I think there is some opportunity, especially with the streamlining of services and delivery of services for retailers. I got to say, I've never, ever been able to get in and out of a retail location as quick as I have now. I've never been able to buy as much uh, from a brick and mortar retailer for pickup, you know, curbside before ever. And honestly, I think there's some. I think it's going to take some time to get back to normal after this new norm. But I think there's going to be a number of retailers that aren't going to change what they've done because they see the streamlined effect and they see the effect of their bottom line and their overall consumer environment. And I don't know why they would change. Well, you've also fundamentally changed the consumer expectations now, right? If you're delivering in a very elegant, streamlined, and fast way, I can't imagine a consumer would accept wanting to go backward on that, right? There are some things, some evolutions that just continue on forward. Absolutely. I mean, you we've heard for before COVID, it was, and it kind of got a little, I would almost say it got a little uh, firing, but you heard the Amazon effect. Everyone was saying, how do we deliver as quick as Amazon, you know, at a high quality rate? How do we do it? And COVID's forced a lot of companies to really elevate their service delivery against Amazon. Right now, you're truly competing for that business even at a tighter race than you had before. And you have no choice but to elevate your delivery of service because the only thing you can beat an Amazon at, right, is the consumer knowledge and experience, right, the immersive experience. But you could also beat them on speed of delivery, especially within that last mile at, at the retail center. If I order online, but I pick up in store, I could still get it quicker from a Barnes & Noble than I can from Amazon. You know, and, and them finding ways to do it at a more rapid pace. I think it's it's made us a little bit stronger against an Amazon, right? Against a, uh, and maybe it's not an Amazon, maybe it's any online e-commerce, uh, you know, giant, right? I think it's made some of these local or regional brick-and-mortar retail stores uh, a little bit more streamlined and able to compete maybe where an area, when you compete for survival, you find innovative ways to compete and ways to elevate what your delivery is, uh, especially when it's when it's for survival. Isn't that what they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. That's it. We all know it well. Yeah. So let me, if, if there's some retailers who are listening in here and they're thinking, yeah, this makes a lot of sense, I, what would you say are the first couple of steps that you want to take? For example, you, you mentioned um, having a team to put together or having an internal group that works on that? Where does that function reside within the organizations or most of the organizations you work with? Is, is that warehouse people? Is that front, front end people? I mean, how do you decide which constituencies, right? Which silos, for lack of a better word, within your organization should partake in this effort to try to, to start to reimagine that space? I think it's always going to start first and foremost with store operations. I think you're going to get the operational leadership that's in the stores today uh, working closely with, uh, you know, procurement, 
HR, um, construction and facilities, along with your store ops teams. I think getting those teams together, uh, a number of seasoned managers, assistants uh, from various markets, maybe to have a little bit of a touch from the different regions. Building that team is going to be first and foremost. Going through your store journey and understanding what it was pre-COVID and how you're going to compete today and what it is during COVID, right? Because now that you've done that, you've built your, your deck of experts, you've gone through what the journey is, and then you go through placement, right? I think we've, we've taken out for clients, you know, floor plans and looked at, here's a prototypical location. You know, where do we need to add sneeze guards? Where's the consumer touch points today? Where do we need to add sanitation stations? And really look at even just building one plant, circulating that, letting everybody in the organization that has to weigh in on, on an opinion of what will work, what doesn't. And again, running it by operations and in the store level. That's a lot of mistakes we saw early on where we saw corporate driving a lot of these initiatives without involvement from the store ops. And yes, it changed quickly when they got feedback from operations after they rolled out the, uh, the initiatives. And it will always be an evolving process. But again, looking at the process, running it by operations and the store personnel, going through making changes, constantly soliciting feedback from the consumer and from your store personnel, what's working, what isn't working, and then constantly reevaluating. Um, those are the real key areas. And then once you've developed what that scope is or what those main critical items are, it's developing the checklist. And then, again, that's part of the reason why we developed the checklist we have that we posted on our, our site is more informational because, you know, what facilities may think of are critical items, store operations may think maybe a portion of that is, and what operations think is important around, you know, how do we return clothing? What's what's the quarantine period on clothing? I've heard anything from 14 days, 8 days, 3 days, 2 days, and this is just from four different retailers. It's no different than when they're taking back, if they take back furniture, right? What's the quarantine period? So coming up with what that looks like and then constantly evaluating what's going to be safe uh, for the business, leveraging into, you know, talking to your council, right? Making sure they're on board with what the plan is as much as we we don't like to say that. You have to, right? You have to know what makes the most sense, especially in a consumer environment. Once you have your plan, you go to your partners. You make sure you, you procure not only primary but secondary and tertiary resources, whether it be sneeze guards, sanit- uh, sanitizer. We had a number of retailers. Part of the reason why we put the supplier list up, we had a number of retailers that couldn't find sanitizer, couldn't find sanitation stations, couldn't find way, uh, social distancing or wayfinding signage. And so we just said, hey, we're going to get together with all the partners we know that we've either installed their product and we put it on the site because having that ability to just be you know, open source and share, uh, this is a time where we need to do it as a, as a group and as a, as a country, we need to help each other. And as a, as just, human being, right? And I think having access to that information, I think is key for a number of retailers looking to reopen. So it's the checklist, having access to the suppliers, having redundancy on those suppliers, evaluating the process, uh, rolling it out, and then reevaluating is, is going to be the key for successful reopening and con- continuous uh, evolving retail environment. So you have that checklist, just so folks know. Um the, the checklist, I believe, is free. You just have to leave an email address. Where can people look to uh, to find the checklist and to get more information? So you could go to our website, cs-hudson.com backslash COVID tools. Uh, we have uh, not only do we have, oh, it's COVID-tools, excuse me. 
we not only have a checklist on there uh, that we've created with our retail background and our, some of our retail partners, we have a strategic supplier uh, list of various resources uh, that you can call and leverage for any type of reopening procedure, uh, anything from retail consulting all the way to uh, having the ability to buy sanitizer from a number of locations, even PPE if you need it. And uh, that's available on our website. I encourage you to check it out if you need anything. I would encourage people to look. It's, you know, ab- access to information is a, a very powerful tool, especially in today's environment. Joe, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, uh, to answer all of these questions and to walk us through this process. I think this is information that people um, really need today and uh, is really helpful to people who are trying to run their businesses safely and more effectively through these really uncertain times. No, absolutely, Bill. I, I appreciate you having me. I, I think, you know, again, I think we all need to really stick together and support each other and share whatever information we have access to and resources to make sure we all come out of this even stronger. So we're here if anybody needs support, and uh, we appreciate the opportunity. And thanks for having me, Bill. Absolutely. My guest has been Joe Scaretta, co-CEO and founder of CS Hudson. Thank you for joining us. We hope to see you next week on the record. Mm-hmm.